at a uh, very large university many years ago. Close to a thousand students gathered in a massive lecture hall for their calculus final. Calculus is hard. But the professor leading this class made it even harder. He was one of those uh, arrogant, boastful, know-it-all kind of teachers who badgered his students. He found ways to increase their stress and he seemed to take joy in their failures. As you might guess, he was not a well-liked teacher. But unfortunately for many of these students, his class was required. When the students had completed their exams, they were instructed to stack their exams and their, and their worksheets on a huge podium at the front of the lecture hall. And as you might imagine, with nearly a thousand students taking the final, this made for a, a mess of paperwork. During this particular calculus final, one student really needed a good grade to pass the class. But he typically did poorly when he was rushed. And he was being rushed by this professor. So to ensure he got a good grade, <clears throat> he hardly flinched when the professor yelled out, Time is up! Pencils down, place your exams and your worksheets in stacks on the podium at the front. That's what everyone did. Except for this one student who continued with the exam. Five minutes turned into ten. Ten into twenty. Twenty into forty. Almost an hour after the exam was officially over, the student finally put his pencil down, gathered up his papers, and headed to the front of the hall to submit his work. The whole time, the professor sat at the front of the room, watching and waiting. What do you think you're doing? The professor asked the student as he started to put his exam onto the stack. I'm turning in my exam, replied the student. Well, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you, young man. Your exam is an hour late. You failed. And consequently... I'll see you next term to repeat my class. The student smiled and asked the professor, Do you know who I am? What? replied the professor. So the student asked again, Do you know who I am? Do you know my name? No, of course not, snarled the professor. To which the student replied, I didn't think so. As he lifted up the stacks of paper and shoved his somewhere in the middle and then walked out of the class. I'm sure the professor wished he would have known who that student was. It pays to know who you are dealing with, doesn't it? 
Last week, we, we learned that Jesus is our advocate. Because He Himself became an offering. A sacrifice for sin to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God. Jesus went to the cross, a cross where both God's love and God's justice converged at one single point. And it was there that Jesus took the full wrath of God so that for those who believe, they might have eternal life. Now, when we think of eternal life, we often think of a heavenly home and rich rewards. And those are most certainly elements of eternal life. But listen to what Jesus said about eternal life. In the Lord's Prayer, or what some call the priestly prayer, Jesus says, He prays to His Father on behalf of His disciples, and He says this in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is Jesus talking. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, eternal life includes a heavenly home. And yes, there awaits rich rewards for those who follow the Lord, but at its heart, Eternal life is not about a place or rewards. Rather, eternal life is about a person. It's about knowing God personally through Jesus Christ. It's about knowing God. And this morning, we're going to talk about knowing God. Not just knowing facts or knowing doctrines about Him, but personally knowing Him. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to pick up where we left off from last week. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 3. Are you there? Okay. John says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Whew! Those are some tough words, aren't they? Now, before we dig into this passage, I need to remind you 
of the background behind this letter. Okay? This is important. If you recall, the Apostle John was trying to correct some false teaching by the Gnostics that had crept into the early church. The Gnostics claimed to have some special kind of knowledge from God that ordinary Christians did not have. And if people wanted to be right with God, they needed to have this special kind of knowledge from the Gnostics. Well, this special knowledge was nothing but a bunch of crazy ideas about Jesus and even crazier ideas about the nature of man. And understandably, their ideas caused a lot of confusion and doubt in the church. So much so that it left some troubled about their standing with the Lord. Leading some to ask, how can someone really know they really know God? That's a great question. How can someone really know that they really know God. It's clear in the Bible that God wants us to know Him. We totally understand that. But it's also apparent that God wants us to know that we know Him. So we can have assurance in our relationship with Him. That's what these troubled church members were seeking. They wanted assurance. So John shares these four verses that essentially say the same thing from either a positive or a negative perspective. And in a nutshell, what he shares is this. The evidence, the evidence that we have come to know God is a life of obedience. Not perfect obedience, not flawless obedience, but a a determined obedience. Where the desire of one's heart is intent on responding to God's word in a right way. There were those in the church way back when. And quite frankly, there are those in the church today. who profess to believe, who claim to be right with God, who say they know God, and yet their lives say otherwise. Their lives give no visible evidence that they really know God. That's what John is telling us here. People may say, I have come to know Jesus. They may say all the right things about God. But no matter what they say, ultimately their lives will reveal the truth about their relationship. To really know 
that we really know God, John says there should be evidence in our lives. And one piece of evidence is a growing desire and determination to obey what the Lord says, to follow His example and to walk in His ways. I was thinking of that old Wendy's commercial where a woman said after looking at a competitor's hamburger, where's the beef? In so many words, that's what John is saying. Where's the beef? Where's the evidence that you know God? Where's the obedience? Because it's our obedience or the lack of it that reveals if we really know God. No matter what you may say, your life reveals the truth about your relationship. Your actions speak louder than your words. Anyone who claims, I know Jesus, but their life is characterized by habitual disobedience and sinfulness, John says they are a liar. Obedience is a piece of visible evidence that we really know the Lord. That's what John is saying here. And that's what Jesus said to us on several occasions. Since we are observing the Lord's Supper this morning, let's see what Jesus had to say during that meal with His disciples. And I want to point out that this comes on the heels of Jesus talking to them about the future role of the Holy Spirit in their lives. In John chapter 14, beginning with verse 21, Jesus said this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's. Who sent me? I brought up the role of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. As you may have experienced, the Holy Spirit prompts us, convicts us, He guides us, inspires us, He empowers us. But if you think about it, all of that is internal. It's invisible. And what both Jesus and John are saying is that the visible way, the visible way to be assured that we know the Lord is by walking in obedience in our daily lives. Did you notice that Jesus tied our love together with our obedience? He did that. 
If we love God, we will have a growing desire to obey Him. Or said in another way, obedience is the outward expression of our love for God. That's what love for God looks like. It looks like obedience. If we claim to know God, if we say we love Him, then we will have a growing desire and determination to obey Him. It's as simple as that. Now, speaking of obedience, we may obey for different reasons. Maybe we obey because we have to. Like Jonah, who was kicking and screaming all the way to Nineveh. He had to obey because I don't think he wanted to spend any more time in the belly of a fish or in the belly of anything else for that matter. He had to obey. Then there are those times when we need to obey. We need to obey. For example, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they needed to obey God and gather manna in a certain way. They needed to obey God if they wanted to eat. Then lastly, and this is where we want to be as we come to know and grow in our relationship with God, we obey from the heart because we want to. We obey from the heart because we want to, which is obedience motivated out of love. Let me illustrate this. I've done this long ago. I'll just do this again. Suppose I am the king of Amboy. Hypothetical, obviously. Suppose I am the king of Amboy. And you, even you, Peggy, You are all my subjects. Okay? I am the king. You are all my subjects. As your king, it is your duty to obey me. You have to. You need to. If you obey me, I will provide for your needs. If you don't obey me, I will punish you and make you wish you had obeyed me. Get your attention yet? Okay. In my kingdom, all of you have roles. And jobs as you serve me. You do your job. I will be happy. And you will be rewarded. You fail in your job. I won't be happy. And neither will you. We straight. One of the jobs in my kingdom is that of a baker. And the baker is Trish. I'm a single king. I don't have a queen, hypothetically. Okay. And Trish makes the best apple pie in my kingdom. No one in the kingdom makes an apple pie like her. She has no recipe. She's one of those kinds of bakers. And those who have tried to duplicate her apple pie just can't seem to get it right. 
So Trish makes the best apple pie in my kingdom. I know it, and she knows it. And every Friday night, without fail, I want apple pie. And she has to make it. And if I don't get apple pie on Friday night, I won't be happy. So Trish has to obey me. She needs to obey me or else. This is all hypothetical, right? <laughs> it's almost <those> recorded. <laughs> it's like, okay, thank God she's not here. <laughs> okay. Let's say over time, over time, I begin to take notice of Trish. Yes, she makes the best apple pie in my kingdom. A pie I get every Friday night. But she is also beautiful. On the inside and out. And eventually, a loving relationship forms. And I take her as my wife. She's no longer my servant. She's now my queen. Okay? So here's the question. Now that Trish is my queen, and she knows I love her, and I love her apple pie... Do I get her apple pie on Friday night? I think I do. But not because she has to, and not because she needs to, but because she wants to. Our relationship completely changes the motivation. And when applying this idea to God, we are motivated to obey Him because He loves us and we love Him. Now, I know some of you, and I know what you're thinking. I hear you, King Bob, but I hope you like Grubhub. I hope you like Grubhub because I wouldn't bake the apple pie for you. And that brings up an important point. Our obedience is not selective. As if we can say to the Lord, I know you. I know you love me. I know what you want from me. But I will pick and choose how and when and if I will obey you. How crazy does that sound? And to remind you again, I am not talking about perfection here. If you recall, John has already told us we will sin. He's already told us that in the first chapter. All of us will have those moments where we blow it and fail to obey our loving God. But someone who claims to know the Lord... But habitually, habitually disregards what he says is lying about their relationship with him. So how can we know that we really know God? According to both Jesus and John, 
one piece of evidence is our determined obedience. Obedience from the heart that grows over time and causes our lives to visibly change. Visibly change. And before I move on, it's important I say this. Obedience does not lead us into a relationship with God. Rather, obedience is the result of our relationship with God. We need to be clear on that. A genuine relationship with God only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, God begins to work to change us from the inside out. To include changing our attitude about obedience. Okay. Let's move on for... For John has another piece of evidence for us to think about. And beginning with verse 7, he says this. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand... I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I will admit that this passage was a little confusing. At least at the start. There's a new commandment. But it's not really that new. In fact, it's old. But I'm writing it to you as if it's new. So the question is, what commandment is John talking about here? He doesn't tell us. But when given the context of this passage, remember context is important, when given the context of this passage, it seems to be the command to love one another. A commandment given in the Old Testament and later given to us by Jesus, but in a new light. If we go all the way back to the law of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Since this is found in the law of Moses, it's understood to be an old commandment. But in the New Testament, Jesus gave us a new perspective and showed us what it really looks like to the fullest Extent, And he said this in John chapter 13, verse 34. Now listen closely to these words. A new commandment I give to you. That you love 
one another. Even as I have loved you. That you love one another. So we are to love one another. That sounds like the old commandment, doesn't it? But not so fast. The old commandment is to love one another as we love ourselves. But Jesus put a new twist on it. And he said, we are to love one another as he loved us. Jesus just took that old commandment to a whole new level. A sacrificial level. A selfless level. An unconditional level. In the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how we are to love one another. We're to love one another just as Jesus loved us. Jesus is the standard of what loving one another really looks like. With this perfect command by Jesus, a command that stands head and shoulders above the rest, John then explains that how we respond to this command to love one another reveals another piece of evidence about knowing that we know God. In essence, if we know God, if we are living in obedience to Him, we will love God's people. But if a person claims to know God, but habitually breaks the Lord's command to love one another, if they are mean and hateful and hostile and bitter towards their fellow brothers and sisters, then something is wrong. And once again, John says they are a liar. And they are groping in the darkness. And just for clarification, John is not teaching that we need to feel a certain way towards others. And he's not saying that we should have the same amount of fondness towards one another. I don't think that's even possible. Instead, I think it's best understood that we're to act properly and rightly towards one another. Or said a little differently, we're to treat others the way Jesus treats us. Now, we will talk much more on this topic later as we continue through this letter of 1 John. But I want to leave you with something told to us by the Apostle Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. How do we do that? How do we examine ourselves? Well, John just gave us two questions to consider. When looking at your life, talking about your manner of life, your lifestyle, do you have a growing desire and determination to obey God's Word? And secondly, do you love God's people? Two questions 
that I cannot answer for you. But if you really want to know that you really know God, okay? If you really want to know that you really know God, your life should give you all the evidence you need. That's what John said. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Some difficult words. Kind of in your face type words. The kind of words that cause us to look in a mirror and to ask the questions. Father, I pray that you would just use this time to to cause us to to examine ourselves and to just to learn for ourselves if we truly know you. Father, we want to know you for that is eternal life. Put away the facades. Father, help us to put away the falseness and the games. And help us to be real with you. Confirm in our hearts, Lord God, where we stand with you. May you be honored and glorified. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to be very careful with uh, this sermon this morning. Even be careful now. We'll be very careful. It is not my intention to create any doubt. I don't want to do that. I just... I've just got to speak the truth. I've just got to preach the truth. Those were John's words. Given to him by God. I think John was pretty clear there, wasn't he? Abundantly clear. I want to say this. I'm going to be very careful. The evidence that you know God the evidence that you know God is not in a magic prayer. It's not because you walked an aisle. It's not because you were baptized. It's not what John said. The evidence is your life. If God in the person of the Holy Spirit now dwells in me, Something's got to give. Something's got to change. It has to. And if it doesn't, there should be some serious soul searching. Serious soul searching. I fear that some 
rest their laurels. Well, I remember when I was 14, I, I, I prayed the prayer and I got baptized and now they're living like they want to live. How do you reconcile that with what we just covered? How do you reconcile that? Your life should be the evidence that you know God. The visible evidence. A growing desire and determination to obey Him and to love God's people. Those are not my words. They're not mine. I, 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 would, I would hate. It would be a tragedy for someone to spend years and years in a church and then meet their maker. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Absolute tragedy. So only you can answer the question for you. What's your life telling you? What is your life telling you? Not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. But when looking at your life, what does it tell you? Time to be serious, isn't it? Your life reveals the truth. Your life reveals the truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, wow. Bob, I don't know what I believe anymore. I would love to talk to you about it. I'd love to share with you what I know about Jesus Christ. I can tell you He loves you more than you'll ever know. He desires that none would perish. Not a single one. And He wants us to really know that we really know Him. That's what He wants. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Or maybe there's something else. However the Lord leads you, I just ask that you respond to Him in obedience in the right way. Do what He asks you to do. What we are doing this morning is a reminder of what I said uh, last week. On the cross, there was this (laughs) convergence, maybe a collision, (laughs) if you want to call it, of God's love and God's wrath. That's what happened on the cross. It was a convergence of God's love and at the same time, God's wrath. And God shared His love for us and laid His wrath on His Son so that we might have eternal life. And this love that we're talking about was a selfless love. It was an unconditional love. He loved us. He loved us. I think if anyone had the right not to love us, it might have been Jesus. But he loved us so much he went to a cross and endured, absorbed the wrath of his Father for us. And so as we come to the come to this point, this is what we think about. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of what He has done for us and how He has redeemed us. He has paid the price in full to satisfy God's justice and wrath. He paid that price so that we would not. That's how much He loved us. With His disciples, Jesus shared His love with them. And told them that he would give his life for them. That was the full extent 
of his love. He gave it all. He said, this, this, this bread represents my body. And when you eat of this, remember what I did for you. For you, personal. This is what I did for you. He said, when you, when you eat, remember. Take it and eat. And we do likewise. And then he took the wine and he said, this is my blood. It provided the redemption of many. And through his blood, we enter into a covenant with God whereby we are made right with God only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a cup that represents life. And Jesus said, drink. May we do likewise. Thank you for coming this morning. Let me uh, close in prayer for our offering. Just a reminder, our baskets are are back there. And then I'm also going to pray for our, our fellowship. So, Father, thank you so much for who you are and what you do. Thank you for Jesus Christ who paid it all. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you. Father, as we give our gifts and offerings, Lord God, I pray that you'd help us to to be cheerful givers. Help us to give to you, not grudgingly, but just to give to you because of how much you love us. Help us to give in obedience. And Father, help us as a church body to use your money wisely in obedience to you. And Father, for our fellowship time, Lord, I pray that it would be a sweet time together. Help us to make connections with one another. Help us to love one another as you loved us. Thank you for who you are and what you do. Bless the food that we take to our bodies. Bless those who prepared food, those who have brought food. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.